0: Welcome to the Twimmel AI podcast. I'm your host Sam Charrington. All right, everyone. I am here in Vancouver, continuing my coverage and conversations at the NURPS 2019 conference, and I've got the pleasure of being with Eugen Schmidt Huber. Eugen is a co-founder and chief scientist of Nascence, the Scientific Director at the Swiss AI Lab, IDSIA, as well as a Professor of AI at USI and SUPSI in Switzerland. You again and I had the pleasure of speaking just over a couple of years ago now, where uh, he hosted me at his lab in Lugano, Switzerland. A beautiful setting and a wonderful conversation that I encourage you to take a listen to. That was Twimmel Talk number forty-four, almost three hundred episodes ago. You is you know regarded by many as the father of AI. He is you know, his lab created the LSTM. That was a big focus of our conversation. The LSTM is a model that you know we all use all the time on our smartphones. And I'm excited to have an opportunity to catch up with you. You again welcome to the Twimmel AI podcast.
1: It's my pleasure being here. Thank you so much.
0: So, you know, I really wanted to start this conversation with a bit of an update. What are some of the things that you've been doing uh, in your research lab and at Nasens? What's been interesting and exciting for you?
1: Let me give you a couple of examples of what Nasens is doing. That's a B2B company. And now we're entering this um, age of active AI where you don't just have passive pattern recognition on your smartphone, but where you have machines that learn to become better machines by translating the data that is coming in through the cameras and other sensors into actions that manipulate the industrial processes that they are controlling. Uh, For example, we have a project with uh, Festo, which is one of the leading robot makers, and they have these hands which are being controlled by air muscles. So you have a compressor which um, is generating the uh, pressure that you need to move these fingers around and nobody knows how to control that. And so Nessens is uh, building the brains that learn to control these soft robot hands that we have there. Or EOS that is a leader in industrial 3D printing where you don't just do Uh, little plastic models of something, but where you really print engines with metal and they have all the patterns for melting the um, powder and then letting it incrementally through additive manufacturing turn into engines of airplanes and stuff like that. And one of these printers costs at least half a million or something. So they are much more expensive than the standard uh, cheap printers that you can buy in the supermarket. It already seems clear that you can further improve these printing processes by understanding better what exactly is the impact of the laser light on the melting process and on the cooling process. And how can you control the thing in a way that improves the quality of the engines that are coming out. Then other projects with uh, Solzer schmidt for example, they have little drones and they are inspecting the wind turbines. And then how can you automatize that? And mm-hmm. how can you learn, make these machines learn to become better quality inspectors? Okay. With Audi a while ago, we had a demo project where a little toy Audis, maybe only one eighth of the size of, the, of a real Audi. They learn to park, not by imitating a human teacher, but just by reinforcement learning, just by maximizing the pleasure signals that come in and minimizing the pain signals that come in. Whenever one of these little cars bumps against an obstacle, then it gets negative reward. Whenever it reaches the parking lot, then it it gets a positive uh, reward and as always in reinforcement learning it's trying to minimize pain and maximize pleasure so it has to translate the incoming video and the other data from the um, radar sensors and lidar sensors into actions that lead to success, successful parking strategies. And that was the first time something like that was done in the real world. These little Audis they aren't as big as the as the real thing, however They have all these sensors that you have in the big Audis, the radar, the cameras. They go up to 120 uh, kilometers an hour. So they are pretty fast too. It sounds um, like a nice toy. It's a (laughs) very nice toy. One has to admit that, yeah. And a whole bunch of other projects. So I'm happy that uh, now that NaSense is in the second round of financing we don't only have these these investors from the platform companies uh, on the pacific rim but now also old industry mm-hmm. old industry is investing in us for example Schott is a leading maker of glass and you probably have them on your smartphone because they are owned by the zeiss foundation and the glass that they make uh, is in the lenses okay. uh, of the cameras on Oh, hundreds nice. of oh, millions company. of okay. smartphones. Many people don't know that making glass is difficult and it's about uh, controlling an industrial pipeline where you have molten glass and it's 1200 degrees Celsius. and. You want to remove the bubbles and at the right moment you want to inject certain substances and you have turbulent mixing that you want to control all kinds of knobs that you can adjust there And this has been traditionally done by humans. Schott is a company which is more than 100 years old. And over the decades, they have learned how to do that well. However, uh, there is still a lot of room for improvement and for making even better glass through machines that learn to do that. So suddenly investors are not just the platform companies from the Pacific Rim, but old industry, which is realizing that in this coming age of active AI, suddenly you can do things that go far beyond passive pattern recognition on the smartphone. And Naysense is in the middle of that.
0: Oh, very exciting, very exciting. You mentioned uh, a few Interesting use cases with the the first one that you mentioned, the robotic hand calls to mind the recent news that you may have come across with OpenAI and their Rubik's Cube and they've used reinforcement learning to kind of train uh the, the model that controls the you know, this highly dimensional robot essentially. Are you also using reinforcement learning as part of that application or what are the kind of the main techniques that you're applying to
1: to that? In fact, the OpenAI robot hand is driven by the architectures that we have developed in our labs in Munich and in Switzerland over the decades. What is uh, this OpenAI reinforcement learner doing? It is basically a big LSTM network which is surrounded by a couple of uh, smaller uh, pre-processing networks, uh, pre-processors of the inputs, and then through lots of simulations there's a pretty good simulation of this hand. Through reinforcement learning, the LSTM learns to control the hand such that it can do interesting things, such as solving the Rubik's cube in a certain fraction of the uh, times. So, yes, of course, we are using the uh, techniques that um, are now popular in reinforcement learning, which is train an LSTM through um, reward maximization to do that. Uh, However, the big difference between what what this example of OpenAI is about and what you have in the real world is, you don't have a good model of the real world. You somehow have to deal with this situation that you have very few interactions examples with the real world from which you have to build a model of the world and then you have to do mental experiments in this model which is imperfect in many ways but can learn to improve itself through further data that is coming in through the actions of the robot that is trying to learn something new. Meaning,
0: are you speaking to the relationship between Uh, simulation and having the the model operate in the real world and kind of correlating or integrating rather those two so such that you've got some kind of end-to-end training process that integrates both sim and real yeah so at the moment
1: AI works well in the virtual realm right for video games like Dota or StarCraft, that's what DeepMind did. Dota was done by OpenAI. AI. Mm-hmm. There, again, you have an LSTM network, it's surrounded by other networks, um, which is learning through policy gradient methods, mm-hmm. reward optimization methods, to make some of these weights strong and some of them weaker, such that the um, whole system over time becomes a better video uh, game player. And there you train the system through exposing it through billions and trillions of video games. Right. This is something that you can do in the virtual realm. And the same principle was applied to the robot hand of OpenAI, where they also had lots of simulations Mm -hmm. because they did have a pretty good simulation of the hand. And then through certain tricks, it was possible to transfer the behavior from the uh, virtual setting to Mm -hmm. the real-world setting. And there, one essential ingredient was this excellent simulation of the hand. Mm -hmm. And normally, you don't have that. In almost all industrial processes, you don't have that. In the real world, you have all kinds of slippage, and it's not well modeled in any simulation, and um, you have so many things that are not modeled. How does a baby learn to deal with that? Well, Mm -hmm. the baby is receiving data as consequence of the actions that it is generating as it is playing with its toys and from this data it learns to build a model. So it doesn't have a given model of the world. No, it learns to build this model and how does it do that? It learns to predict what's going to happen next. What is the next input given what I have done so far? And some of the uh, Inputs are predictable, others are not predictable. And the baby even does more than just predicting the next thing. Somehow it learns high level abstractions and it learns to plan ahead in a way that apparently is not the millisecond by millisecond planning that you would do in a detailed simulation of the world where you mm-hmm. would try to come up with a sequence of actions that leads to a lot of predicted reward in that simulation where you really have a simulation that millisecond by millisecond simulates the entire world. And such a simulation is totally dependent on being a good simulation and no, no errors are allowed there. While um, the models that humans uh, carry around, they are more sophisticated in the sense that they uh, acknowledge that certain things are not known and other things are uh, rather predictable and they don't do this millisecond by millisecond planning. No, they do high-level planning. Like for example when you are um, going to Beijing, you, you make a plan for that and you don't plan the trajectories of all your muscle movements millisecond by millisecond. No, you say uh, first I have to find a taxi and then once I'm in the taxi I'm going to the airport and then I'm entering the plane and for nine hours nothing is going to happen Mm -hmm. and then I exit. So so this high-level planning is something that humans are really good at and probably also some of the animals. And now robots are not good at that yet. However, this is changing and we are making great progress exactly in that realm. Generally speaking, current AI works well in the virtual realm video games or robots where you have a really good simulation of the robot and it doesn't work well yet in the physical real world. So
0: is the implication of, of this that the model that you developed with the hand was not based on simulation, it was all based on training through experimentation on the physical hand itself? That's what
1: we generally do. Okay. So we, we try to learn like a little baby, a model of the industrial process that we are controlling. Mm-hmm. And because in most cases, there is no good model of this process, we have to learn it from experience. So suddenly we need a system that learns to generate experiments that lead to data that can be used to build a better model. When I think about, for example,
0: you know, maybe this doesn't apply to hands uh, to the extent that it applies to like robotic arms, but in with robotic arms, there, you know, I've often kind of talked to folks or talked about kind of this tension between, you know, folks that want to tackle that problem with end to end deep learning, which doesn't have advantage, doesn't have the advantage of any model versus folks that want to take advantage of kind of traditional control systems and you know robot kinematics that you know if you're able to integrate those traditional models you know that we do kind of know how to get a robot an actuator from one position you know in a 3d space to another position in a 3d space because we have kind of models that that, hmm. that do that it sounds like your approaches aren't kind of model based in that perspective you're learning everything from the ground up using reinforcement learning without the benefit of simulation hmm. is that so, you know, what, what are the leaps that i'm making there you know tune that up for me yeah.
1: So in industrial applications, we use everything that is already there. So if there's a reasonable model of the process, then of course we are going to use that. It's just that the most exciting applications are those where you don't have that model. Mm. Sure, if you have a factory full of industrial robots, then you know exactly where each of these robots is positioned. You know exactly where it has to um, grip the chair and how to um, move it exactly at the right position in the car where it's going to uh, end up. Mm -hmm. So there you have very precise industrial robots and they, they are... Extremely good at, at doing what they are doing because everything is totally under control. There's a perfect model of where everything is located, where the tools are, where um, where the cars are coming in, where the chairs are mm-hmm. they They can do that without cameras, even because everything is already modeled extremely well, right But that's not the future of manufacturing. The future mm-hmm. of manufacturing is all the messy things, all the messy stuff, like when you are assembling a smartphone, for example, there are all these little parts of the smartphone and at the moment, humans have to do that. So Mm -hmm. there is no robot that is able to do that, at least not in the way that humans can do it. And what you um, really want is a robot that is confronted with a new task and quickly learns through a few interactions maybe a few demonstrations of a human, but also a few self-generated experiments, how this thing works and how to screw in that screw and how to avoid that the screwdriver slipping and all these super complicated, important things that are easy for humans, but not yet for current robots. And it wants to to learn through a combination of curiosity mm-hmm. and imitation of what the human teachers are showing to it. It wants to learn to execute this new behavior quickly at some point as well as the teacher who is just through visual demonstration and through speech and language trying to explain to the robot what it wants to, what it should do. And then once it is able to do that to a certain extent, you want to have the robot through self-experimentation to speed up the process and make it more efficient such that it can do it much faster than any human mm-hmm. and with less energy and then once uh, once it's really good you want to uh, switch off the learning algorithm and make a million copies and license sure. it sure. or sell it.
0: Yeah, yeah as we t- we've talked about on this show many times RL is particularly deep RL is historically extremely simple and efficient right mm-hmm. and so A lot of folks will turn to simulation because if they just try to train in the real world, they'll destroy their robots before they converge to any type of model. Is the work that you're doing there focused on the
1: the sample efficiency side of the equation? It is the the essential thing which we need for dealing with the real world. Mm -hmm. Because there you can have only so many training examples and self-invented experiments, and that's it. You can't have a trillion experiments like in video games, for example. Right, right. So that's the big difference. And it's really the single most important issue. the, the, The big gap that exists between the learning abilities of humans and our best reinforcement learning algorithms is really that. Mm -hmm. So from very few training examples, you want to pick up all the things that are necessary to control that process that you're trying to control. Mm -hmm. And it's what current reinforcement learning algorithms are not so good at. Mm
0: -hmm. What are the specific things that, or specific research or papers that you're working on in your lab that try to get there? Is it, you know, how would you even... Do they fall under kind of the banner of one-shot, few-shot learning, meta-learning, curriculum learning, imitation learning? Like, are there, are they, you know, one or combinations of these things, uh, or is
1: it an altogether different approach? So since we are interested in universal learning machines, it's all of that. Okay. But let me give you a one concrete little example of okay. something that we published just a couple of days ago okay. in an arXiv paper, something which is called upside down reinforcement learning. Upside down reinforcement learning, okay. Upside down. I'm already intrigued. (laughs) It's called upside down reinforcement learning because it turns traditional reinforcement learning on its head. Traditional reinforcement learning works like that. You have um, a neural network or some other um, adaptive machine which takes in data from the environment Mm -hmm. and produces actions which change the environment, which means new inputs are coming in from the environment. And there is something you want to maximize, which is the cumulative expected reward. So when the when the robot is acting in a good way, then it gets a reward and it wants to maximize that by making some of these connections in the network stronger and others weaker, such that actions come out in response to the inputs that lead maximize to a lot of reward. success. Yes, yeah. exactly. And then uh, the way it's usually done is there is a second network, which is a prediction machine, which sees the actions of the first network and the inputs that are coming in from the environment and it's trying to predict given this policy that is implemented by the first network what is the expected future reward so the sum of all the rewards that is going to uh, come in until the end of the current trial for example mm-hmm. And then through this prediction, which depends on the actions and the information from the environment, you can find actions that lead uh, to more reward than what you had so far. And then there are simple ways of adjusting the first network such that the actions that are being generated by it are more likely to lead to a lot of reward. So what is um, very essential there is this prediction of future expected reward. And upside down reinforcement learning turns all of that around. It doesn't have the rewards being predicted by the outputs of such a network. No, the rewards are becoming the inputs to a network which produces the output actions and which also sees the standard inputs coming from the environment. And these incoming rewards are interpreted as commands. So there's this extra input field of this control network, which is... So it's, it's not the cumulative reward, it's the reward that's a result of the previous action? No, it's in or fact... Or is it the cumulative? The cumulative reward that you would like to get between this time and this time. In the, in the simplest case, there are two inputs. Mm-hmm. One is a time input, which says between this time and this time... I want to get so much reward. Mm -hmm. That's a command. That's a command. So now the network sees this command and tries to come up with actions that between this time and this time lead to so much reward. Mm -hmm. It just tries to obey the command. Okay. So now it's executing its actions and it turns out that the incoming reward is less than what the command requested. So then we have a training example where the network can learn something from that and it can learn in the following way. Let's adjust the command retrospectively. Let's take the real reward that came in between these two uh, time steps and use that as a command. And let's run the whole thing again and let's train it to generate this action sequence that it already has generated in response to these modified commands which are now consistent with uh, what the network did. Okay, so now um, it learns to um, generate an action sequence like what it just had generated in response to these commands. And what you really want to achieve is that you generate action sequences that lead to more reward. So Mm -hmm. you say, let's give a new command to the system. Let's say um, we now want to have twice as much reward as last time. So, new command. Everything is uh, the same, except that um, now we want twice as much reward as a command input, so the network is producing outputs in response to that, and maybe the uh, result is that the reward that is really received from the environment is indeed twice as much mm-hmm. because it somehow was able to generalize. Then we are happy, then we say, on, oh, let's try the same thing with four times as much reward, mm-hmm. and it almost and, sounds like uh, a a binary search of the
0: reward space, or something like that. Maybe not binary, but you—you, you, I'm imagining that you would start with, you know, an unachievable reward, maybe infinite, and yeah. you would you. The network achieves much less than that, and yeah. then you you know it says, okay, maybe i'll you know go to half of infinity or whatever half yeah. of the large number that
1: I would love yeah. to have yeah but but the point is from each of its failures to to satisfy the command, mm-hmm. it learns something, so mm-hmm. it learns each time something new about how to map commands to action sequences mm-hmm. and over time it will learn the structure of this space um, of parameters that you need to translate these commands into desired behavior. And then you can do very directed exploration because you just, as you said, you give new commands that you never have given before mm-hmm. and you hope that the network will know enough about the space of these parameters and about the functions, mapping, uh, reward commands to output actions Uh, such that it can generalize and yield even more desirable behavior. And so, whenever these expectations fail, it still has a new bunch of training examples from which it can learn to become a better translator of commands into action sequences. Mm -hmm. So, it's not some random uh, exploration, no, it is a way of using pure supervised learning to achieve this reinforcement learning objective, which is get a lot of reward and very little time. And um, it's just learning through supervised learning to map these combinations of cumulative rewards within certain time intervals to action sequences. Mm -hmm. And And, the
0: supervision comes from... uh, It's kind of a binary supervision achieved or failed to achieve the command based on some sequence of actions.
1: Yeah. And so there is, we know... For each behavior, for each trial of the agent, we know exactly how much reward did we get. Mm -hmm. We know exactly which action sequence was there. And in retrospect, we can adjust the reward and time command Mm -hmm. such that it is compatible with what really was achieved. If you know power play algorithms or hindsight experience replay algorithms, or if you know rudder algorithm of Hochreiter's group, then you already know a lot about the principles of what upside-down reinforcement learning Mm -hmm. is about.
0: In the paper, how did you compare the performance of this approach to other approaches? And maybe before that, is... Do you envision this approach being applicable to the same or any, you know, reinforcement, any of the kind of traditional RL problems? Or it does this approach with the, you know, the time and the reward as the inputs, is, is it particularly, you know, interesting or useful Apply to a specific formulation of the RL problem?
1: Yeah. So Rupesh Kumar Srivastava, my co-worker at Nascence and a former PhD student of mine, and other colleagues at Nascence, and also Edizia, they came up with variants of what I just explained Mm -hmm. and showed that although we at the moment have just little pilot versions of this simple new type of reinforcement learning, it already is able to um, beat certain uh, traditional baselines on interesting uh, problems. The the thing about this upside-down reinforcement learning is that its limitations are exactly the limitations of supervised learning. Mm -hmm. Because basically, we are translating reinforcement learning into supervised learning in a way that depends on these deep networks that have to learn this complicated mapping from reward commands to action sequences that lead to the reward that has been requested Mm -hmm. within two uh, time steps that are also given through the command. And then... This is a complex mapping and it needs many layers because you change the reward command just a little bit Mm -hmm. and um, this might lead to a quite different action sequence that should come out and so on. So we know how to train these deep networks and we have millions of tricks in supervised learning to do that in a good way and Rupesh and the others use that and use some of these tricks to make that really work but there is so much that we haven't even exploited yet so many many ways of improving supervised learning which can all be applied to this in principle very simple type of new reinforcement learning. So it sounds like the when
0: you, when you mentioned that you included comparisons on traditional benchmarks, you know, what categories of traditional bench- benchmarks like the Atari games and it,
1: that kind of thing? or yeah. In the current experiments, the result mm-hmm. is it works especially well when there are sparse rewards. Mm-hmm. So when you don't get uh, rewards all the time, like in certain video games, mm-hmm. but only at the end of the trial, which is actually the most challenging situation because if you don't get a lot of rewards during all your trials then there's not so much right. from what you can learn something which means you, you have this
0: attribution problem of what was it that you did that resulted the, in the rewards that you did get
1: the credit assignment problem exactly mm-hmm. in some ways the most challenging type of reward maximization problem. Mm -hmm. However, at the moment, we have just these pilot experiments and let's see where that goes. At the moment, it's also just an active tech report, and it's it's useful already. We see that, but who knows uh, how much better it's going to get once we use all the tricks of supervised learning to to, to improve further the current pilot implementations. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: And so is that being presented here in a workshop or
1: something like that at, at NeurIPS? Rupesh, Kumas uh, Rivasava, is actually going to present that, I think, tomorrow. Okay. Awesome. Awesome. Well, we will definitely look that up and
0: link to uh, the archive paper in the show notes. And I'm looking forward to digging a little bit deeper and seeing what that's all about. Sounds really interesting. All right. Well, you again, thanks so much for taking a few minutes to chat with us about you know, what's new, what you're up to. Looking forward to uh, connecting once again in the future.
1: <laughs> thank you so much for having me. And it was a pleasure being here. Absolutely. Thank you.